The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning. This is Greg Roman here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Radio Hour. I'm joined by my producer, Marilyn Stern in studio, and our thoughts and prayers go out to Gary Gamble, who is uh, right now um, not with us, but uh, hopefully he'll be rejoining us next weekend or as soon as possible. Get better, Gary. But on to the news. We have an exciting program this morning, Marilyn, where we're being joined by two people I've wanted to interview for a very, very long time, both coming from Israel, uh, one not originally from there, the other a Sabra, a Israeli native. Um, the first, Lieutenant Colonel John Conricus, the Israeli Defense Forces spokesperson for the foreign media, giving us the latest on the security situation in the West Bank, in Gaza, on the border with Lebanon and Syria, looking afar towards Iran and giving us the latest on how the IDF is not just adjusting to a new Middle East reality of the last three or four years since President Trump took office and the realignment, if we can call it that, between Israel and Arab states, but how that portends for Israel's strategic picture, how it is adjusting its military might, a new five-year plan being adopted by the Israeli Defense Forces in terms of being able to readjust how their expenditures work, how they reassess threats, how the chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces, the new chief, the relatively new chief of staff, he's been in office for about uh, 10 months now, Aviv Kochavi, is uh, containing all this, maybe a little bit of uh, some lighter moments, like um, the uh, flooding of a IDF or IAF, Israeli Air Force, hangar, uh, and the system of justice that works out, and also just a little tour of his career. We're also joined by Martin Kramer, the preeminent dean of American Middle East Studies. Or, or you know, let's divide this into two camps, okay? Martin Kramer is over in Israel right now. He's working with a, a few senators over there. He's writing with Mosaic. Daniel Pipes is here in the United States. Both were friends or students of Bernard Lewis, the once dean of Middle East Studies until he left this world earlier last year. So I'm going to appoint them or anoint them in two different sections. Martin will cover those who are dealing from the Middle East and also cover the East Coast of the United States. And maybe we'll put Daniel up in the Northeast from his time at Harvard, and then he'll take west of the Mississippi River. And between the two, we can actually get an understanding or better assessment of uh, Middle East and Islamic studies programs in the United States. Martin, of course, is known for his book on the Ivory Tower assessing the status of Middle East studies programs in the United States. About 20 years ago now, I guess it came out, maybe uh, 18 years ago. I have to look into that over the break for some better research before he comes on the program. But a very exciting uh, hour ahead of us in the Middle East Forum Radio Hour. So, Marilyn, I was going to ask you, did you have the opportunity to see the State of the Union last night? Yes, I did. All right, so we had some uh, uh, limited foreign policy engagement, but we had the first remarks from President Trump on his so-called deal of the century since it was released last week with uh, Israeli opposition leader Benny Gantz and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, what was your take on what he said? Well, generally I tuned in when I was uh, watching a lot of the audience reaction and the audience participation. So what do you think Republicans think about the deal of the century? I think they're very enthused. I think they're hopeful. I think they're also realistic. They know what, uh, what the history has been. 
But I think under under Trump, it's a, a new uh, new idea. And what was the reaction coming from the Democrat side of the aisle? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, one fellow there, I don't know who it was. He was slouched off to the side in the seat, his uh, face in his hands, and he looked pretty glum. Now, that could be any, any House member over the age of 85 <laughs> or any of the squad. Uh, maybe Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There's actually a remark that was made yesterday by Trump on his way out of that where he was saying, you know what? I think that maybe Chuck Schumer has got something to worry about after this impeachment vote tomorrow. AOC is going to primary him. I wonder if she's going to be responsible for her own Middle East peace process. That, that would be nice. The, uh, the the AOC from the Bronx trying to tell us what to do in the Middle East or from oh. Queens or whatever district that she represents. But I got to tell you that I think that there was a message of hope that was, you know, stirring through his speech yesterday. No mention of impeachment, um, no mention of any real domestic political squabbles, but the, um, you know, trademarks. If we had our checkboxes of what we consider to be an appropriate American Middle East policy. First, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. All right. Dealt with him in the first half of the year. Right. Actually, it was a little bit later. A few months later, Qasem Soleimani. All right, we know what? It was a little bit after New Year's, but we're going to include it in the speech anyway because it was after the last day of the union. Trying to negotiate peace between Israel and the Palestinians? We'll try, but we're approaching it from a realistic point of view. And then he goes back to this May visit that he had had first to Saudi Arabia. I spoke with Daniel actually about this last week. We have to make sure we get uh, the triple locations first, not just the overall system of where they were. But first he visited the Saudis and the Arab and Islamic countries, which was the OIC meeting, which took place in May of 2017. And then he came to Israel. That was his first visit, and he joined with the prime minister. And uh, it was actually his first and only time that he went to Ramallah to go meet Abu Mazen uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority and the presumptive head of the Fatah party. But um, I think that, you know, if we take that trip as his first, you know, getting his toes wet, in American Middle East foreign policy. And now we look at the successes that he's rattling off during the State of the Union last night. Not doing such a bad job. But at the end of the day, you don't rank your successes based on you know, which targeted assassination you approve or which uh, peace process you start. It's about objectives coming to an end. You set them a few years into your, a few you know months into your administration, the years that subsequently come forth are, are what you're doing. And you know, there was this um, meeting that took place between the uh, interim head of the Sudanese military civil hybrid council that took place of Omar al-Bashir. And you have Prime Minister Netanyahu sitting next to him uh, as a result of, uh, I'm sure, hours, days, months of back-channel, maybe even years of back-channel negotiations between the two parties. And it's fascinating because you have this um, dividend, I guess. I don't know if we call it a peace dividend. But you have Trump saying, this is the way that American foreign policy in the Middle East is going to go. You're either with us on this, this, or this. Or here's a uh, downward path for dictators. Either they're falling off the mountain or they're gradually retiring and then going into to, uh, the, the abyss. And then those who are coming up to replace them. I mean, we saw this with the new head of Algeria. Uh, the chief of staff of the military there uh, died. There was an election. Now he might be the presumptive head replacing there. There was a new election in Tunisia. Um, we have uh, Sisi feeling a little bit more comfort with an American president. Libya, Haftar right now is keep on sticking it to everyone who's involved in that conflict. But the Sudanese example is how American allies like Israel 
can benefit from Trump challenging the status quo in a country like Sudan, saying, you know what, we're not going to intervene, but we're not going to lend any support to the government there. And at the same time, maybe those others who are with us. I mean, Mike Pompeo made a big deal out of this on his visit to Morocco. He was trying to barter and negotiate a meeting between the king and Prime Minister Netanyahu that was almost ready to fly over there. Look, going one for two means you're batting 500. It's really not that bad. And, and I think like the major league average, what, like 350, 360? So if you're above the average, you're doing okay. Anyway, enough on that, on the State of the Union. After these messages, we'll be joined by Skanaluf, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conriquez from the Israeli Defense Forces. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rational excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. Now I am joined by someone who I may have shared an office block with. Ten years ago, when I was working in the Israeli Defense Forces Coordinator of Government Activities in the Territories Civil Division in the Ministry of Defense's headquarters in Tel Aviv, Israel, uh, this is an individual who actually, I think, started his career outside of the spokesperson's office and eventually made his way into the forefront of Israeli Defense Forces public communications. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conriquez is the head of the international media branch of the IDF spokespersons unit, which means that he is the IDF's spokesman to the world. The Lieutenant Colonel is responsible for the public affairs and public diplomacy of the IDF, in traditional as well in social media. And after making Aliyah, that means um, becoming a citizen of Israel, at the ripe age of 13, I hope he didn't enlist then, uh, Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Conriquez has been serving in the IDF for 20 years in a various amount of capacities, including combat experience from Lebanon and Gaza as a platoon and company commander, while focusing the majority of his military service on international relations and military diplomacy. He's married and blessed with four children. Lieutenant Colonel, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. A pleasure. So tell us, where did you emigrate to Israel from? I was actually born in Jerusalem, but uh, spent my first 13 years in Sweden. My father is Swedish, and at, as you just said, at the age of 13, made Aliyah together with my family, 
settled in Israel and have been living here uh, joyfully since. So before we get into the really heavy topic matter, I just want to say that those individuals who you know may be born in Israel, maybe they come from Israeli parents outside, maybe they have no connection whatsoever, and they end up making themselves available to the military over there, are really doing a service. Because what's different about the Israeli military versus many others, maybe except for the Foreign Legion in France, which has a you know totally different vibe to it than a uh, all-citizen army, is, is that it's really a melting pot for all elements, not just of Israeli society, but also all those who come to live in Israel. So you you have a very unique position here, not just being a spokesperson to um, comment on military matters, on the status of the army, but also you're sort of reflecting yourself in your own personal story, a uh, ability for a spokesman to then translate his own personal experience when you imbue those views on the military to the rest of the world. What's that like, being the IDF's spokesman to the world? Well, the job itself is quite demanding. It is a job that I take with um, a very heavy sense of responsibility and awe. It is something that I am very proud to do, to represent my military and to a greater extent to represent my country and to speak on behalf of all those uh, brave men and women who serve, who defend Israel against what I think is a, a multitude of threats that I don't think that there's any other country in the world so small in size that faces that amount of different and variating military threats. And to add on to what you said about um, the IDF and its uh, position in the Israeli society, one thing that I think was beautiful back then and still is beautiful is how the IDF is a unifying force in Israeli society, and it is still at this time the place where you can come from various walks of life in Israel and from abroad, and based on your merit and your accomplishments and your beliefs and uh, the things that you actually do, uh, you can uh, serve your country in the most important way, and you can actually walk out a different man or a woman after having served, earned friends for life, life skills, and having contributed to something very, very tangible which is the uh, security of the state of Israel. So let's dive right into the security of the state of Israel. We'll do a tour de force. We'll cover Lebanon, Gaza, Iran, and then some of the defense systems that Israel is now employing to make sure that the threats that are external do not emanate and become internal or internalized. With Lebanon, the impact of Hezbollah's recent takeover of the government, we know that the Lebanese are unhappy right now. They're marching the streets of Beirut. Uh, it might be easy. We had Tony Badran, who's a, uh, a Lebanese national, who came to the United States 20, 30 years ago, gave us the take on this last week on last week's program. But I'd like to hear not what the Israeli political response is to what's going on in Lebanon and the formation of a new government there, but how does the IDF now differentiate between Hezbollah, the state within a state terror organization, and the Lebanese government. It seems like they're they're one and the same. What's what's the IDF's new strategic outreach and and and, and uh, take on Lebanon post Hezbollah co-opting the government? Yeah, when we look at Lebanon, not necessarily the state of Lebanon, but as you correctly pointed out, Hezbollah. When we look at, let's say, across the blue line towards Lebanon, then we face what is our current most imminent military threat right along our borders, where Hezbollah, a Iran-funded 
and uh, Iran-funded uh, terrorist organization has more than 130,000 rockets hidden behind schools and in civilian locations in Lebanon, and all of those rockets are aimed at Israel. So before we go into the question of how our relations with the Lebanese armed forces and Lebanon in general, it's, I think, important to emphasize the very, very clear and imminent threat that exists from Hezbollah towards the Israeli civilians. Now, it's one thing to threaten the military. That's okay. That's what we, the military, are there to do, to defend. Uh, but our biggest concern is that Hezbollah and many other terrorist organizations, we can speak about Hamas and the Islamic Jihad in Gaza, what they've done uh, ever since the Arabs lost in uh, 1973, the Yom Kippur War, was come to the understanding that if they can't beat us on the battlefield, they will try to do so uh, using terrorism. And lately, as in the last 15, 20 years, the home front, as in the Israeli civilian rear, has become the actual front. And when our chief of staff, Lieutenant General Aviv Kohavi, looks ahead and uh, walks or wants to address the Israeli civilian population and try to uh, uh, make Israelis understand the military threat that we face from Hezbollah, Hamas, and others, we're talking about hundreds of rockets that possibly may rain down on Israeli civilians. All of those rockets fired from Lebanon by Hezbollah, most likely at the orders of Iran, not by the orders of the Lebanese government. And here that connects with your question. In the past, we used to have a clearer distinction between the Lebanese armed forces, the armed forces of the Lebanese state that are uh, under the guidance and orders of the Lebanese government, and between Hezbollah. That distinction is blurring, and today there is a worrying trend of a growing influence of Hezbollah over the Lebanese armed forces. We see it in the intelligence arrays, we see it in uh, counterintelligence, and we see it in various units, mostly those that are uh, deployed in southern parts of Lebanon. So to sum up the uh, situation with regards to Hezbollah, it is our most significant now current threat that we face in terms of the rockets that they possess. And when we look into the future, we see that Hezbollah is trying to develop not only to have a vast arsenal of rockets aimed at Israeli civilians, but that they're also trying to develop missiles which, as you know, but just for the benefit of everybody, the difference between a rocket and a missile is that a missile is accurate and can strike a very specific target, as in it can strike a very specific building or a facility. Now, no other terrorist organization in the world has access to that kind of weaponry. Hezbollah is trying industrially to be the first internationally recognized terrorist organization to have its hands on PGMs, Precision Guided Munition, from our point of view, that is a strategic threat that we have said very clearly that we're, we want and are committed to stopping. You haven't just said it very clearly. I mean, in August of last year, you blew the lid off of Mohammed Hajazi, the new deputy commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the former commander of the IRGC, excuse me, the new deputy commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' Al-Quds Force. This is the force mm -hmm. that Qasem Soleimani was leading until his unfortunate, or fortunate rather, demise. Uh, his unfortunate, our fortunate. And now we see Hejazi, who you pointed out in August of last year, 
was the head of the missile program for the IRGC, Al-Quds Division, in Lebanon. If you, want to, if you want to see how important this man was, he's number two in the Al-Quds Division now because of his involvement in building Hezbollah into that proper military fighting force. It's not a terror organization. It's a terror army. Or even now, if we you know link it between it, it's its military might, its involvement with the Lebanese armed forces, and its political control of the country. We've now seen Lebanon. It's not a state within a state. It's now been overcome by a parasitic terrorist state. So let's pivot for a second to not Mohammed Hajazi, okay, but but to Iran. This this bigger threat that you speak about. Yes, they are um, sponsoring the Houthis. They are uh, backing the uh, PRM. The popular resistance movements, in, excuse me, the PMU, the popular mobilization units in Iraq, they have their support for mm-hmm. Syria. We just had a major IRGC operative killed in um, northeast, uh, excuse me, northwest Idlib province yeah, yesterday. Yeah. And we have yeah. their control over Hezbollah. But the, the nation state, rather, the Islamic nation state of Iran itself has a significant strategic weapons program in terms of its long-range missile and precision-guided munitions, in addition to its asymmetric capabilities, which threaten Israeli soft targets around the rest of the world. Uh, with Iran itself, what threat does it pose now? in this post soleimani Middle East, especially towards Israel? We know about the United States, but how is Israel taking this dramatic game changer into its strategic calculus? Well, the very fortunate uh, death of uh, the uh, the, uh, notorious terrorist, uh, the late uh, Qasem Soleimani, uh, is a game changer. It's a game changer that our intelligence community is still assessing the immediate outcomes of and the midterm uh, outcomes and trying to assess what the long-term effects will be. And it's still early days. It's still difficult to say what exactly the outcomes are, but I can say a a, a cautious, uh, optimistic note that we understand that the Iranians are having difficulties filling the void, the void that the assassination of uh, Qasem Soleimani created, which of course we see as a very positive thing, and I think anybody who has uh, the interest of stability in the Middle East at mind should be very happy that uh, Qasem Soleimani is no longer around to wreak havoc and to promote uh, terrorism in the region. Uh, The fact that uh, he is no longer, again, changes of uh, personnel in uh, the Quds Falls, very interesting to follow to see how they try to continue operations, and they'll probably have to focus and and reassess their priorities, as in what are the core uh, assignments where they will still continue to operate despite the setbacks of not having a charismatic and very well-connected terrorist leader. And uh, I think the appointment of Hijazi to uh, deputy indicates that they're trying to compensate for the fact that uh, Ghani, the uh, current Quds Force commander, is a uh, terrorist who was uh, mostly operating in the East and has limited, relatively speaking, experience uh, in the western part of uh, where Iranians conduct operations. Uh, And we assume that uh, Hijazi is supposed to fill that void, and it correctly indicates how important Hezbollah is in Iranian uh, eyes and how important the precision 
guided missile project that Iran is funding inside Lebanon uh, through Hezbollah, how important that is for, uh, for Iran. Now, from our perspective, we've said very clearly that, you know, there were many people who asked us uh, the, the immediate aftermath of the, the assassination of the Soleimani. So what's going to happen now? Are you concerned with the... Uh, a possible Iranian attack against Israel, and is there a heightened uh, alert? And our response was that, you know, actually Iran actually attacked Israel six times already uh, since uh, February 2018 and until today. Well, you had the uh, MLRS systems, attacks, uh, you had different rocket systems, you had the attacks on the Golan Heights. I mean, there's been a significant amount of Iranian direct fire on Israel. Not a lot of people talk about that. Yes, not a lot of people talk about that, and uh, we've been able to uh, fortunately defend ourselves against those. And it's worth mentioning that each time that Iran attacked us, we responded quite fiercely and struck against military targets, Iranian military targets in Syria. But the bottom line is that uh, the region, uh, Syria, Lebanon, and everywhere else that Iran is operating is still very volatile. The fact that Qasem Soleimani is dead doesn't mean that the Iranians have changed their way and are no longer pursuing uh, terrorism, are no longer trying to create instability. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Our assessment is that the Iranians will still try to entrench themselves militarily in Syria. They will still try to bring uh, very dangerous offensive weapon systems to Syria in order to be within striking range of Israel. And they are still investing heavily in Hezbollah focusing on precision-guided munitions, but not only. Now, the political echelon in Israel is responsible for deciding when the IDF goes to war. It's a very clear separation between the civilian supremacy over the armed forces. But when the army is asked to uh, embark on that mission for whatever the government decides is the goals of the next operation, and God forbid the next war if it happens, the new chief of staff, Aviv Kochavi, has redefined what it means for Israel and its defense forces to win a war. According to a report from Israel Hayom, the uh, Israel Hayom newspaper, uh, back in March of last year, IDF Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Aviv Kochavi decided to hold a three-day seminar the first week in March devoted to how Israel can win a clear, decisive, irrefutable victory in the next war it fights. Now, this combined with the new IDF's five-year operational plan, the Momentum Plan, and just for our listeners who aren't familiar with this, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, you can tell me if I'm incorrect on this, but the IDF has a certain amount of strategic planning that it does on a half-decade basis. What will the next threats be? How do we make a leaner army? Are we going to invest more money in infantry or the Navy or, or rockets or special forces? Like any you know, Western modern military, it has to make its plan. So with the uh, chief of staff defining or trying to redefine what it means to have a clear victory for the army, uh, compared that with the new capabilities that the IDF is always investing in and um, the new threats which are showing up on the horizon, how do you pair this military ideology and strategy with the um, threats that the Army faces? Is, is it responsive? Is it reactive to what you think is going to be the problem? Or is it sort of the the, 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 the you know, kishkis, the, the inside of the way in which the military thinks and redefining the ethic of what it means to be an IDF officer or soldier? 
Well, it's actually a very, very fascinating process to be witness to, whereby the IDF is re-evaluating, taking a fresh look at what the threats are, how our enemies are uh, changing, and what the demands are from Israeli society and Israeli decision-makers of the IDF. And I've said, I said before that we face quite a lot of threats. We face, you know, on the lower end of the spectrum, we have to deal with uh, car ramming attacks, uh, Molotov cocktails, and, uh, uh, and, and simple, uh, that, that, that type of military threat. And on the higher end of the spectrum, we have to be capable of intercepting intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, maybe with uh, uh, conventional uh, warheads and maybe with unconventional warheads. And then have to be able to do everything in between as well, including classic maneuver warfare, and of course, mostly counter-terrorism operations and counter-guerrilla. Uh, we've done a, an assessment of the modern battlefield, uh, how it is changing, and what those changes dictate of us, how the, they influence our operations. And the chief of staff, as you correctly uh, pointed out, has been very clear that we have to uh, re-evaluate and rethink how victory is achieved against terrorist organizations and to be very clear and precise how to achieve them. Now, one thing that I think is interesting and anybody who uh, has a military background or a military doctrinal background will find this interesting and, and perhaps even agree with it, is that we are in today's military operations, especially against terrorist organizations that are embedded inside a densely populated urban area, using the civilian population as a shield. Today we're fighting less for terrain and more, in terms of our objective, is taking away or negating enemy capabilities. Uh, which I think is a key tenet of uh, the, uh, our chief of staff's plan, uh, is to calibrate our forces, whether it is intelligence, fires, maneuver, and logistics, in a way to focus our efforts on taking away the enemy's ability to act against us uh, and uh, achieving set achievements or, or specific goals uh, that we stipulate before, so that when the fighting ends, the enemy, whether he is a terrorist in Gaza, in Lebanon, or elsewhere, uh, has very little to show uh, in terms of achievement. And we, the IDF, have been able to take away the vast majority of their capabilities at a low or limited cost in a very short period of time. That, in essence, is uh, what we are uh, aiming to do. Uh, and uh, we're going to roll out, the chief of staff is going to roll out the, uh, the, the, the momentum program, which is a very detailed uh, analysis of, as I said, the environment, and then how our force design or force buildup will change or adapt accordingly. And uh, with regards to, of course, the strategic picture, this has to connect with uh, the forming of an Israeli government and the adequate funding. Uh, being found. That's a key tenet, uh, which uh, we're, of course, eagerly looking forward to.
I'm, I'm sure you're glad you're not the spokesperson for the Knesset. You'd have a different position to articulate every other uh, four-month period. <laughs> I won't get into that. I know you can't comment on politics, but uh, good luck on the uh, beginning of March on your third election in, uh, in, in one year. That's the resilience of the Israeli political system, the fact that you're able to uh, to have so many elections in the military. It stays the course. It says, we'll handle these problems, guys. Just get a government. We'll be okay. Um, lastly, you know, on this element of victory, and I, I want to kind of transition for a second to the situation in Gaza, the chief of staff in that speech that he gave at that seminar said, victory and mission focus are our main values, and we will approach every mission we undertake or with which we are charged with precision and determination and all the tools we have. Now, um, this emerging truce in Gaza, I know that that's not decided on the military level, but the military does have a significant amount of input in the way in which its recommendations are for how to deal with Gaza. And look, it's a horrible situation. You know, you got this. Uh, what? And just, just to give you a little background on me, I was responsible for um, the uh, easement program, Akalot. Uh, as it dealt with uh, Gaza back in 2008, 2009, right after cast lead. So I know the situation there. We speak a lot about this on the program. Um, and there's not really much you can do. I mean, you have these you know, terror organizations which are manipulating the population. Israel's south is burning every time that something happens like this. It's not good for anybody on either side. And now they're talking about a truce. Um, how does the military position itself to not just do tit-for-tat response, like a rocket goes and then an F-16 blows up an ammunition dump. What what tools does the Army have at its disposal? And I, I know, again, this is a political decision. It's not one made by the military. But when the military is asked to act to increase or, or reinforce deterrence in Gaza, what is the, the preferred way in which to do that? To, to drop bombs in empty fields or to actually go forth and try to get to the target that's responsible for all that rocket fire on the country's south? Well, that's a, that's a long question, uh, and I'll, I'll try to give a, a as focused answer as I can give. As you said correctly, I agree, the situation in the Gaza Strip is, is quite frankly, a sad situation. It's a situation where more than 2 million Palestinians live under uh, the very heavy hand of a terrorist organization called Hamas, where they have no liberties, where they have no freedoms, where they are under a dictatorship, uh, which essentially is under Sharia law, uh, a rather harsh uh, interpretation of it. And at the end of the day, we are faced with a, a very, Israel is faced with a significant dilemma, and I can of course only speak from the security point of view, with trying to alleviate civilian suffering by uh, allowing uh, goods to flow in and people to come out. Uh, but knowing, unfortunately, from, from uh, experience, that everything that Hamas and the Islamic Jihad, but mostly Hamas, can use in order to fight Israel, they will use and abuse. Whether it is dual-purpose goods, uh, fertilizers, cement, as an example, or uh, uh, cameras for military use, Anything that comes into the Gaza Strip, Hamas takes it and tries to use it in order to fight against Israel, uh, and making it much more difficult and, and piling on suffering for the civilian population. We, 
the IDF don't have an interest in continuing civilian suffering. On the contrary, we understand clearly that the better the civilian situation, the lower likelihood of instability uh, and fighting in war is. And therefore, from a moral point of view and from a military point of view, we try to uh, improve the situation. The problem is that Hamas, even these days, when there are uh, ongoing talks, reportedly, uh, it still continues to fire rockets and to launch um, balloons carrying explosives from the Gaza Strip into Israel. Over the last uh, five days, we have had nine rockets fired from Gaza into Israel at Israeli civilians. Uh, and I'm sure that hasn't been reported in uh, American mainstream media, which I think is unfortunate, because it's difficult to uh, imagine living uh, in, a, uh, in a sovereign country and uh, having our civilians being bombarded almost on a nightly basis by a terrorist organization just a few kilometers away. Uh, and that is the sad reality that Israeli civilians have to live through. They suffer a lot uh, in that aspect. And you asked about our response, the IDF's response, so I reject even the notion of us striking empty sand dunes or uh, however you refer to it. Every bomb uh, that we fire has a target, a military target, uh, and each one uh, has a special or a specific effect that it is designed to, uh, to achieve. But the challenge is that Hamas hides behind the civilians, and uh, of course, tries to use civilians as human shields. So given the fact that we want to be very careful not to strike uh, civilian places and cause uh, uh, civilian casualties, we strike the places where we know for certain or with a high level of certainty that are only military targets and belonging to Hamas. Some of those targets are underground, many of them actually are, and some of them are above ground. But the bottom line, I think, is this. is a complex situation where Hamas holds the Palestinian population in Gaza hostage uh, is basically driving Gaza uh, towards the cliff. And if they don't uh, uh, stop and assess the situation, stop violence, and think to put the interest of the civilian population before their jihadi terrorist uh, uh, aims, the situation won't go well. Lieutenant uh, and, Colonel. Uh, that's really Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, here's to hoping we can push Hamas off the cliff and keep Gaza on the edge. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. A pleasure. After these messages, Dr. Martin Kramer. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of nonviolent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org. Or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. 
emergency stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, broadcasting live from our studios on the main line. It's me, Greg Roman, your host, director of the Middle East Forum, and our producer, Marilyn Stern, here our communications coordinator for the organization. And I am very happy to welcome Professor Martin Kramer, the founding president of the Shalem Center in Israel, a former publisher, editor of the Middle East Quarterly, the Middle East Forum's trademark and flagship publication, and an overall expert on the Middle East, contemporary Islam, and modern Israel. He is currently the Corette Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Mark and well, Martin, welcome to the program. A pleasure to be here, Greg. So I have to start off with asking you about your uh, seminal book, Ivory Towers on Sand, The Failure of Middle Eastern Studies in America. Because it seems that for the first time in 22 years, an American presidential administration and its Department of Education is listening to what you wrote or is reading what you wrote 22 years ago. They are demanding accountability and federally funded Middle East study centers. Not that that was the main subject of what you wrote. Yours was more on the you know topicality and, and then the politicization of the field. But this ongoing struggle for over two decades of trying to find some sort of accountability actually came to an end yesterday when Duke and UNC, uh, their Middle East Studies programs, were subject to federal complaints, and they actually came to a settlement with the Department of Education to offer unbiased or less biased, more diverse views of the Middle East. What's your take? Well, the struggle did begin uh, way back then when I published my book, and it did have a section there calling for Title VI reform. And uh, I and some others were very involved in, uh, in about 15 years ago in attempts to get uh, accountability into the, pro- into the program. It proved to be impossible to do at the time. I think probably because in the aftermath of 9-11, there was a, <clears throat> a huge uh, investment by the federal government in building up expertise needed uh, to fight that war. In fact, the Bush administration was the, uh, <clears throat> the biggest funder of Middle Eastern studies probably in history, in the aftermath of 9-11. So that didn't go anywhere. But now we're in another, uh, we're in another world. U.S. interests have shifted. Uh, the politics have shifted. And uh, the kinds of things which were tolerated uh, 15 years ago are no longer tolerated today. So I do uh, welcome this development. I think it's related, uh, but important, uh, because overall the situation in Middle Eastern studies has unchanged in the intervening years. And so it's uh, it a, uh, a weak point. In academia, it remains a weak point in America's intellectual uh, and um, and um, professional preparedness to deal with issues in the Middle East. Um, I give credit to others, though. I mean, it was others who carried the ball over all these years. I've been doing other things, going back to my historical work, building a college in Israel. Uh, there are a group of people who have <clears throat> who kept the flame alive, and they deserve all the credit for uh, the transformation that's happening now. 
It would behoove me to uh, you know thank Winfield Myers, the director of uh, Campus Watch here at the Middle East Forum, and also the uh, acting, uh, not acting, but the assistant secretary for civil rights in the Department of Education, Ken Marcus, who was your partner on this in the private sector prior to his ascension to the Department of Education. So I, th- I think that you wrote this piece in, in uh, uh, your book. You, you said, a secure semi-entitlement backed up by the full weight of the higher education lobby, referring to Title VI, may have actually been beaten back a little bit. So Mazel Tov and, and uh, Kola Kavod to you, Martin Kramer, on that. Pivoting for a second to your recent comments on the peace process, what's your take of the Trump peace plan? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is uh, is uh, separate our analysis plan from the partisan political atmosphere that prevails in the United States today, and just look at it um, uh, for its on its merits and on its limitations. That's hard to do. I understand that's hard to do, but it's really important because otherwise, um, you're letting um, uh, your political prejudice influence your analysis, and we want to neutralize that. Um, the plan has, I think, three key levels of analysis you could do. There are assumptions of the plan, there are the principles of the plan, and there are the details of the plan. Uh, and it's important not to, not to reverse the order of discussion and get lost uh, in the details before you look at the assumptions and the principles. So the core assumption, I suppose, is that the end of the conflict is important. Right? I mean, why have a proposal? There have been administrations that didn't make a proposal. By the way, the Obama administration basically dropped the whole issue at one point. Uh, and focused elsewhere. Um, the idea that this that resolving the conflict could have a positive effect on the U.S. position in the Middle East, on Israel's position in the Middle East, is the basic underlying assumption of this initiative. And it's, there's a bit of linkage in here. In other words, it's important because it connects with the way the U.S. is perceived in the region and the way Israel is perceived in the region. So that's one uh, core assumption. And I think the second core assumption is that you can't convert history. You know, history only goes in one direction. Um, and that's reflected in the principles. Now, there are two key principles here. One is um, in a, that there's no way that um, you're going to see the massive movement of peoples uh, or parts of peoples as a consequence or, in, in, or as, a, uh, as an element in any solution. What does that mean? Anyone who thinks that 80,000 or 50,000 or 20,000 settlers can be removed from settlements under any political constellation, which is, an imaginable, which is imaginable in Israel today, is simply dreaming. It's not going to happen. And the second, that anyone who imagines that the West Bank or Gaza could absorb other huge numbers of Palestinian refugees, really descendants of refugees from other countries, is also dreaming. So everyone stays in place in uh, this plan. And uh, I think that's a core principle. Another core principle, and you can get around it, is that the United States remains committed to a two-state solution. It has been since 1947. Even a man now described as Israel's best friend in the world still cannot put on a table that doesn't highlight two-state. And then the rest are details. We can discuss the details. I think that they're the most flexible part of the plan. In fact, as Jared Kushner indicated, they're all open the negotiation. I'd say that even includes Jerusalem. It certainly includes the borders and the, uh, that are proposed in the conceptual map. Um, so, in, so in a way, it's pointless, lost in the details at this point. It's much more important to focus on the assumptions and the principles. 
So let's talk about the conditioning of the Palestinian people before we even have any, uh, you know, uh, principles associated with the peace deal. Because as far as they're concerned, anything that this president or whether it be Benny Gantz or Benjamin Netanyahu offers to them, they'll say no. A hundred years right. of Palestinian rejectionism. And, and I'm sure you're familiar with the campaign that the Middle East Forum ran in Israel last summer associated with our Israel Victory Project, the idea that you can only make peace with defeated enemies, those who recognize a sense of defeat. What's your take on that idea? Do you think that there's a way to the Palestinians to give up on Samud, their uh, steadfastness, their rejectionism, Sirbanut, as it's called in Hebrew, or are we in for this for another 100 years? Look, let, let me first begin by making a minor correction to the way you described the plan. You called it the peace plan. It's not a peace plan, it's a partition plan. And a partition plan doesn't have to be accepted. In fact, no partition plan was ever accepted by the Palestinians in order to have historic effects. Okay? The 1947 plan by the United Nations, which was accepted by the Zionist movement and was rejected by the Palestinians, still had transformative historic effects. Creation of the State of Israel. So, and, and, and what characterizes a partition plan is that basically it's the proposal of a third party looking from the outside that has some authority, whether it be the British in 1937 when they proposed a partition plan, or the United Nations in 1947, or the United States today. So in a way, the importance of the plan has, and, and, uh, is, uh, transcends whether either of the parties accept it. And I don't think that the Palestinians can accept it, will accept it, uh, given their state of their... Um, um, they're, they're mismaking in their political vision. There are plenty of elements in the plan which Israel really can't accept either. Although Israel will accept in print the, the assumptions and the principles without accepting necessarily the details. So, um, but that doesn't mean the plan won't have an effect. And so the question is if the plan is never implemented, it will never be implemented on all its details. It might not even be implemented in other respects. Um, but what will be its historic effect? And I think that what will be transformative here for the Palestinians, too, is that they will begin to understand that history only runs in one direction and that the world is moving gradually to, a, to an accommodation with the facts of history. The Palestinians haven't done that. Um, and the reason they haven't, part of the reason, isn't just because they're hidebound. It's because the world has told them again and again that history can be reversed. Um, and even the United States at various times has told them history could be reversed. When people stop telling Palestinians that history can be reversed, that is the beginning. That is the beginning of wisdom for the view of the Palestinians. And so that's the effect of the plan. And that's why the plan is so important. It begins uh, with the United States, will percolate to other uh, states in the West and Arabs. And the Palestinians will begin to understand that their demand for reversal of history has no support from anyone else. Right. You write in an article that you wrote on the 102nd anniversary of the Belfour Plan on October 31st of last year regarding this issue that when the declaration clearly marked the beginning of the end of the Jewish problem as Weizmann and the Zionists understood it, not that there wasn't any Jewish problem, but contextualizing that for the way in well, which it was. Weizmann used that phrase, actually. Right. But I'm, I'm disagreeing Weizmann with Weizmann. I'm saying that the yeah. Jewish problem for yeah. Europe, you know what, it's your problem, deal with it, all right? Uh, right. You know, right. it's uh, the, the same exact idea that it's you know Jewish quandary. I wouldn't call it a problem per se. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. As Weizmann and the Zionists understood, a total absence of power that left the Jews as wanderers, vulnerable and weak. What will it take to realize 
on the Palestinian side, that there is a vacuum of power there. They have no legitimacy in the eyes of many Arab states now. Now, in the eyes of these Arab populations, maybe. They have no ability to control their ability of, of uh, telling their leaders what to do unless they openly revolt. And even if that happened, the IDF might come in and save those leaders who are providing sort of a Faustian bargain for security as it relates right now to at least the West Bank. And they're suffering. I mean, their brand is crisis. How do we get the Palestinians to realize, like the Jews realized, you know, I guess it was 1948, so 72 years ago now, that the gig is up. You've lost. It's time to develop your own polity, not based on rejecting another. How, how, do, we, how do we get there? Well, you just did it yourself. You have to begin to tell them the truth. Now, coming from Martin Kramer <laughs> or from you will have no effect on them whatsoever. Um, but when they start to hear it, from the very same quarters, which historically and traditionally had been supportive of uh, their demands, then that will begin to have an effect. And that's why, um, as I've argued elsewhere, what's really important for the Trump plan to have that historic effect, to be marketed to the Europeans, to the Russians, to the Arabs, so that while they may not enforce it, in fact, very few of them will openly endorse it, many of them will reject it, they will begin to echo some of the assumptions and principles that are in the plan and, and, and go to the Palestinians and say, look, we understand why you reject the plan that's full of flaws and so forth and so on, but the basic assumptions and principles have some validity. And when they begin to hear that from friends, not from you and I, but from their friends, then that will have an effect. Um, uh, you know, they can, it, 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 in a way, the responsibility, much of the responsibility for the predicament of the Palestinians today relies not just on them, but on their friends, or would-be friends, or supposed friends, who lied to them, misled them, and promised they would deliver to them on fantasies which were completely detached from reality. And so um, I don't see that, the, the, and I think Jared Kushner also would not see the Trump plan as some unilateral American act. Even the Balfour Declaration, which I wrote about and you've mentioned, was not cleared it with all their allies in advance. And I showed that in an earlier uh, study. It was like a Security Council resolution practice. <laughs> the U.S. has put this plan on the table. Now what it has to do is not to get endorsement of the full plan from anyone, but to get other parties to echo elements of its assumptions and principles and play those back to the Arabs and especially the Palestinians. And I think you, you, you are very pressing on this insofar as um, three elements of Palestinian rejectionism. One, their own internalization of their situation to the uh, inability for Israel to have its own strategic calculus in dealing with them, especially the weak need approach of the military sometimes. But three, you hit the nail on the head, international support for Palestinian irredentism to their detriment, not to their benefit, is something that we might see. I mean, yesterday we have six countries out of the European Union rejecting a joint EU statement that otherwise would have past diseases slicing through, uh, you know, uh, a loaf of bread has in the past. But for right now, uh, Martin, I want to thank you for joining us. We uh, we have to get going. We've got about 30 seconds left here on the program. But the next time that we're in Israel, we've opened up an office now in Talpiot. I want to invite you over. We'll get some coffee, and we'll, uh, and we'll sit down and discuss this more. Maybe we'll even do a live broadcast from the uh, Holy City. 
That would be great. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Martin Kramer, founding president of the Shalem Center and fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. This is Greg Roman and Marilyn Stern here on Middle East Forum Radio on WWDB 860 AM signing off. Have a great week.